Cardinal Seurat has accused the Pope of heresy, violating the solemn oath before God he took as a cardinal. He must now hand back his red hat. Who do you think you are? Like, he somehow holds the power to get cardinals to step down because, what, he is the biographer for Pope just like well and lecturing someone to stay silent when your job is literally to not stop talking well it's interesting it's like here is a, a very wealthy white liberal telling a black african cardinal to shut up interesting timing on this too because this happened at the same time as the gross book news came out about cardinal fernandez and his previous work that was basically pornography and then there was a push from the archbishop from malta and he was talking about how uh, we should be more open to married priests josh has made his thoughts known on that as well if you'd like to make them known again josh well, I, you're, it, you're welcome to it i time. just want to say Right, welcome back to Loopcast. Today, I am joined by my co-hosts, Josh and Erica. And if you were lucky enough to be a part of the first live test, yes, indeed, we did go live on Monday. You may have noticed that a Monday episode was put up, which is a little, a little unusual for us, but very fun. So housekeeping notes, we are going to be doing live shows on Mondays where you can come join us at noon, every Monday at noon, uh, to come be a part of the live show on YouTube. After that, it's going to be posted just like normal. They're going to be very similar to these Thursday episodes. It just gives us an opportunity to comment on the news as it breaks a little bit sooner so we don't have to wait till Thursday to talk to you guys. Uh, all around, it's going to be very fun. Uh, Josh, uh, as people have been commenting, was really on for the live. So Josh, was great on. job. Seems like it's a good fit. It was your element, Josh. Not the first time I was live. I actually was on Fox News Live one time. I mean, sometimes they do recorded bits, but I was live and I thought, oh, gosh, I better watch out. Better not. Is is that something to really brag about, though, these days? <laughs> hey, it was 20 years ago, okay? I was... <laughs> Back in the heyday. Did you have That's Did right. you have some more hair then, or was it always like this? Uh, uh, I lost my hair pretty early, so I don't think I had <laughs> That's it then. That's great. So, so final note on that, if you want to join us for these live shows, it is noon Eastern on YouTube. Look up the Loopcast. It'll, it's always in these descriptions. Go join us there. It's going to be a lot of fun. So this week, uh, full slate of news. Josh may even have some breaking news for us, but we'll get to that when we get there. First off, we've just seen clicked on in the loop all the time. People still want more information and there continues to be breaking news on it. Uh, fiducia supplicans, aka Fiducia Fabulosa for a certain member of this podcast. So Cardinal Seurat has joined the fray now at this point. And he's been met with, uh, interestingly, a lot of pushback from a very specific group of Catholics. Uh, Erica, would you like to go over how Cardinal Seurat has jumped into the fray, what exactly he said, and why some people are maybe upset? Sure. So true to form, Cardinal Seurat, we love you. In a what he calls his Christmas message, which was a, a talk given in French uh, over the Christmas season, he addressed head-on the DDF uh, Fiducia Fabulosa, and the money quote is, I share and make my own firm opposition to the declaration, Fiducia Supplicans. And of course, in his, uh, in his style, those of you who have read Power of Silence, if you haven't, go read it. Beautiful, beautiful book. But he makes, of course, the, the doctrinal point that Catholic tradition has always stated that acts of homosexuality, sodomy, are intrinsically disordered. They're contrary to natural law. And then he ties it into Pope Francis's own language of mercy. So people have called Francis the Pope of mercy. And Cardinal Sarah, Sarah goes, 
any pastoral approach that does not recall the objective truth of human sexual complementarity would fail in the first work of mercy, which is the gift of truth. So he goes right to the jugular there. But then he makes a pastoral point and he rejects this sort of all these attempts to clarify the document. If you remember the original fiducia, it says in the document, there will be no further speaking from Rome on this issue. This is done. There will be no further commentary. Don't expect anything. Followed by a 5,000 word explanation of the document, multiple interviews by Cardinal Touchy for like why I said what I said and how it doesn't actually mean anything. So everyone needs to calm down, calm down African cardinals and, and be prayerful about this. But Cardinal <laughs> Seurat, he just rejects all of the clarifying attempts. And he says, the DDF has been unable to correct the confusion and errors that followed the document's release. And by its lack of clarity, the document has amplified the disorder that reigns in hearts. And some have even seized it to support their attempt at manipulation. And we can think of prime examples here in the United States. I could States think of some. Couple. We've yeah. got a couple examples. But that was those were sort of the two points. We had the doctrinal point, very clear and loving and based on mercy. And then a pastoral point about the failure of the DDF to shepherd the church, the flock of God. So it was a wonderful document, very gentle, loving, recalled people like, oh, B-16, John Paul II. It was great. Then we get this comment from Austin Ivory, (laughs) who is the the papal- Who is Austin Ivory before? Austin Ivory, for those of you who don't have to have your head in the gutter all the time, he is the papal biographer, official Francis biographer. He's long been in Catholic journalism, quote unquote, church politics, all that. And I mean, I was trying to look him up on Muckrack, which is where you go to find what people have written, but he tweets so much. He is so active on social media, it buries all of his actual pieces. So the guy oh. is out there talking all the time. But he blocked yeah. me on Twitter. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I got blocked too. I was like, we have arrived. I have been blocked by Mike Lewis and Austin Ivory pretty bad. Yeah, she's. But he goes, this is Austin, right after Cardinal Seurat's, uh, you know, French speech was translated. Cardinal Seurat has accused the Pope of heresy, violating the solemn oath before God he took as a cardinal. He must now hand back his red hat. If he is convinced in conscience, he must stay silent, trusting history and God to vindicate him. That is prophecy. All else is power politics. Austin Ivory, speaking truth to power there. Telling Cardinal Strad to hand back his friend. Kind of awesome. Like, first, who do you think you are? Like, yeah. like he somehow holds the power to get Cardinals to step down because what? He is the biographer for Pope. It's just like, well, clearly and lecturing someone to stay silent when your job is literally to not stop talking is a little ironic. Well, it's interesting. Like, it's yeah. like, it, you know, it, again, it's like here is a, a very wealthy white liberal telling a black you know, Catholic African cardinal to shut up. <laughs> and they're the ones who are so hyper-focused on race. It's like, uh, maybe you shouldn't say that. I don't know. But you do you, Austin. You do you. Interesting timing on this, too, because this happened at the same time as the 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 gross book news came out about right. uh, Cardinal Fernandez and his previous work that uh, was basically pornography uh in the guise of catholic intellectualism i I don't know i'd even say that's a second book that he's kind of written like this who's scrubbed from the vatican archives Uh, people knew about this book but they wanted to hide it so 
it was interesting to see, and I believe he put in his two cents on the book too. He's like, I don't really see a problem with this. It's just uh-huh. like theology of the body. I'm like, are, do you have eyes? Like, are we reading the same stuff? So no, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's hard. It's becoming harder and harder to not u- utilize the phrase Pope Splainers. I, I know, Erica, you're like, well, I don't even really like saying it because I, I don't, don't wanna... think that even accounts for this. I mean, it, well, with Gesa Austin Ivory, he's, you know, again, it's like trying to hold these people to account for the things that they say, the things that they do. And he's, he does not operate. This is what I have to remind people. There are a lot of people in this church and in our own country who are, are simply not arguing in good faith. And so you like, you try to hold them account. Like, look, you're contradicting what you said earlier. They do not care. I mean, they right. literally have the heart and mind of a Marxist. And they're like, all that matters is winning. All that matters is power. And to them, it just, they bulldoze any other ethics, any other morality, any other standard. Like, you're like, well, wait a minute, but the principle of non-contradiction would state that you can't, <laughs> believe, they don't care. They just blow right, right through all those doors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what Aristotle said about that? Aristotle about the principle of non-contradiction? That, so for someone who doesn't, ex- who doesn't accept the principle of non-contradiction, it's like talking to a vegetable. <laughs> it's like, yeah. That's like awesome. a rotting legume, <laughs> or, or like a or like a three year old arguing oh, with toddlers, <laughs> right? That's what I'm saying. It's like you lose your mind. It's like ah, shut up and do it. At the same time, there's interesting timing in all of this. So the book dropped, uh, the Cardinal Seurat thing dropped, and then I believe Pope Francis spoke out against surrogacy at the same right. time. So it's it, it's just odd timing and the, surrogacy. And then the other thing was there was a push from I believe Archbishop. Charles, uh, the Archbishop from Malta. He's got a tough last name there. Uh, <laughs> he's the ad- adjunct, yeah. adjunct secretary at the DDF. And he was talking about how uh, we should be more open to married priests and the married priest route. And of course, that's another kind of hot button issue. Uh, Josh has made his thoughts mm-hmm. known on that as well. If you'd like to make them note again, Josh, you're well, welcome I, to it, it this time. I just want to say, like, we see that the, so many things that we care about in terms of the the deposit of the faith being undermined and attacked. And so when someone talks about, should, should we keep the discipline of Mary priest or not? They associate that with just one more attempt to chip away at everything that the church believes. So I, I understand like the, the natural reaction to be against that, but it's, it's a, it's a question. I mean, I've, I've had married priests before they, they were Anglican priests and they came, became Catholic and they remained priests. So it's a question, you know, it's, it's a discipline it's not like a morally right or wrong decision, but, Again, I think the concern is that you have people who are bringing it up who want to just bulldoze everything. So I understand the, the hesitation, but yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it's trying to understand what's going on with the church. We have a lot of people who are, I, I, like I say, they're, they're operating and acting in bad faith. So it's, it's, it's a tough time for the church, certainly. Now, with regards to the Pope, I just want real quick on this one, like the surrogacy thing. He didn't have to say anything on this. I mean, church teaching is clear that we're total, the Catholic Church is totally against surrogacy for a host of reasons. Erica's written about this a lot. But, uh, and so, I, you know, I kind of snidely say, oh, it's nice to see him say something that I, that is not only not bad, but good. Yay, clap, clap, Yay. clap. You know, <laughs> it's a win. <laughs> low expectations. But I am happy that <laughs> he it, said Josh. it. I am happy that he said it because the LGBT you know, jihad is so powerfully in favor of their agenda and they're so vicious against anyone who tries to oppose it. So it does take courage for any leader on the global scale 
to sound off against surrogacy and say why it is so bad. So I do thank him for saying, I honestly, I'm not being snarky. It is good that he said it and he didn't have to. Uh, but again, the conspiracy guy, he's saying this to kind of, you know, distract right. from the fiducia fabulosa. I don't know. Yeah. And, and a certain book that was revealed. I mean, exactly. It does feel like, look at the shiny ball over here. Right. It almost feels like Cardinal Fernandez has had his Tobin moment, like the nighty night baby moment where I have a hard time imagining he'll ever truly have full like integrity. Anything he does from now on, that's always going to be brought up, right? These two books and right. Supplicans, I don't know. Mm -hmm. So it, it almost feels like someone said it almost feels like someone kind of has it out for him because of course this was hidden, but then revealed at this time. So I don't know. There's just kind of an interesting. I don't know if they had it hidden out. I don't think they had it out for him. I think what happened was Fernandez was always a guy that was in the Fran, uh, Francis's inner circle or whatever. But it was only when six months ago he gets elevated to this position in charge of the deposit of the faith. That was about six months ago. And that's when people are like, I know there's that other book because there's been journalists and people writing about stuff and they know things so like I, I know there's a book on this guy. And they just doubled down their efforts to try to find the book because he got elevated to this position six months ago. And then they, they might have found it recently and they might have just said, okay, let's gather our stuff, talk to different people, get the information ready. And then this, you know, document comes out from the DDF on, you know, fiducia supplicants. And so it's like, this is the time we need to release this book. We need to let people know where this guy's coming from. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily conspiracy in other words. I mean, it wasn't like he had been in charge of this position for eight years and they just now decided to drop it. So yeah, he's fresh. What Sarah had said about pastoral is very good. And it, uh, you know, echoes what, uh, a lot of people put out this quote by Pope, uh, Pope Benedict XVI about, you know, if you want something to be pastoral it has to be true. And so I went to go look for the original source document on that. And it was back when he was in charge of the CDF. CDF. <laughs> CDF. Yeah. And so it was a letter. And it was about bishops and priests dealing with people who are struggling with same-sex attraction, actually. He says, we encourage the bishops then to provide pastoral care in full accord with the teaching of the church for homosexual persons of their diocese. No authentic pastoral program which includes organizations in which homosexual persons associate with each other without clearly stating that homosexuality, homosexual activity is immoral. A truly pastoral approach will appreciate the need for homosexual persons to avoid the near occasions of sin. I mean, it's just so simple. It's like... It's so yeah. simple and clear. Yeah, the clarity. And I, I mean, I want to shout out to Courage International for really fulfilling that mission in the church and and growing to a point where they can be available um, to people uh, who struggle with same-sex attraction. Yeah, to go back to the uh, the married priests issue from the archbishop, this is, again, he was, the he was the adjunct secretary at the DDF, so he works really closely with Fernandez. And like the porno book that came out earlier this week, one wonders at the timing of this, bringing up the conversation about the married priesthood. But Josh, I really I appreciate your point that um, it's the it's the timing and it's the people making the push for it. If you if you read through his interview that he did on the vocations of the priesthood, the interviewer is at, is talking him about to him about the crisis in vocations, which is you know truly on a global scale. It's just 
we could use more priests, right? In America, North America, Europe, Africa has an even higher ratio of laity to priests. Priests are, um, you know, travel hundreds of miles. People might not hear mass more than once a month or every six months. Um, and so he's saying, uh, you know, in order to increase vocations, we allow marriage. And then he says, because we know there, and we know that there are priests who, quote unquote, cope with their position, I think he means celibacy, by carrying out, quote, sentimental relationships in secret and they have children. Um, and so he's saying, well, the solution to this w- could be to allow marriage. And it's sort of, I, I think that because he's coming from a place where, you know, kiss me with the kisses of your mouth and, and like, uh, you know, eroticism tells us about God. I don't think he has a good argument for what, a positive vision for the married priesthood. He touches on history. He touches on you know the Eastern Rite churches, which is probably the strongest argument. It's like, look, all the Eastern Rite churches have a, a that way that argument. married men. Right. That's the best argument. But he, he still has to dabble in this. It's going to solve a, a mitigative crisis. It's going to allow for people who can't do celibacy, and so they end up falling into sin. And I, I think the whole, the whole issue of the married priesthood being framed in this way as, look, yes, the church has an ideal, the evangelical councils have an ideal of celibacy for the kingdom, like Jesus, but nobody can really do that, guys. So let's allow it's the worst for that. argument. It's the it's the worst argument. Well, it's for a negative. It's a negative argument. Right, and that's that's what really like got me about the archbishop here. I'm like. Yes, there is a good argument for married priesthood, and it's not that. Uh, quick update. Uh, we talked about the William Penn statue, uh, and we got a quick update on that right after that. I did discover that the guy on the Quaker oatmeal box is William Penn. <laughs> well, it's inspired by him, but it's not technically. because you, way... to- you told me <laughs> it was him. <laughs> That's Check the, the whole... tape. I know. It's... I'm just... You, I did not say I just... Oh, inspired. my gosh. It's inspired. I'm t- I just <laughs> All right, so it's not actually William Penn, but Pennsylvania is named after William Penn. Correct? Yeah, yes, which Pogo also brother. discovered right. on I didn't know live. That. It was a live moment. So, it's great. Monday anyway, uh, so we, we, we have teach an our audience John. and our fellow co-hosts. What can we say? Yes. <laughs> uh, Josh, we have an update on the William Penn statue in Pennsylvania. Yeah, this is a, actually a, a pretty fascinating story because uh, Governor Josh Shapiro, super, super left wing on abortion and against religious freedom and all that kind of stuff. But William Penn himself, the father of Pennsylvania, is a big, strong advocate of religious freedom. And Josh Shapiro went on Twitter and bragged about how he campaigned and called the Biden administration all day to get that uh, get this decision reversed. And so he was doing a victory lap. And you know what? Did that make me mad? No, I'm glad he did, because I, I like it when apparently in Pennsylvania, the ground is shifting so fast that Democrats of Pennsylvania realize we got to get with the program and watch out or we might lose office. Fetterman, right? He's talking about the border being a problem. Now you got the governor like, yeah, we don't want to be this woke that we're removing the statues of William Penn. So it tells me that that the left is starting to kind of freak out that they're being characterized all by the way too radical fringe. Uh, and so people like uh, my coworker said that uh, her friend's like, I mean, I'm liberal, but I'm not a leftist. You know, and, and so they're making this the the separation, and it and it tells me that the far left wing is bec- starting to become toxic and poisonous, which of course their ideology is. 
but that it's becoming politically toxic. And why do I say this? I am in Michigan, right? Michigan, Donald Trump won by a sliver in 2016, and then he lost it in 2020, right? New poll just came out by the Detroit News. Trump is up in Michigan by eight points. That's un- that's amazing, right? Now, will that hold in 11 months? I'm not saying it necessarily will. We'll see. I have to be surprised if it was by eight points, but like that just it's tells crazy. you the ground is shifting in some of these states that were the big surprise in 2016. Michigan, Pennsylvania. So that statue, I think the governor of Pennsylvania understood, like, we need to get out ahead of this. This is not some, you know, left-wing bureaucrat was like, let's get rid of every statue. And the governor of Pennsylvania is like, we're going to get slaughtered if we kind of do this stuff. So good, good, good break of, of actual, you know, sanity, uh, an outbreak of sanity. This is kind of neat to yeah. see. So to just to fully wrap the story, this would be initially the statue is going to be taken down and replaced by some like indigenous welcome welcome yeah, center native american gathering space yeah, for yeah. native american rituals which and right. william penn was super friendly to the american indians like uh, he did a you know pe- they credit him for being great so it was like right by the standards of his day he was like a radical progressive in terms of let's free let's respect <laughs> religious right. freedom and, and, just, and the american so, indians so ignorant yeah. The yeah, if, you're taking, this, if you're taking that down, I mean, your right. state was named after him. Like, where, where do we what go from there? What are you going to do? There? Rename the state? Rename the Probably. state? Yeah, what are you going to blow up Mount Rushmore? Or what you, I mean, what is... <laughs> uh, uh, Josh, don't say that because yep. you give them ideas. They might <laughs> oh, actually, you know what? Maybe that's what it takes. Like, you do that and then we can say, see, these people really do hate this country. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. We move on now. Uh, again, just want to remind, live Mondays, noon Eastern. If you want to join us on YouTube, please do. If not, they will be uploaded on Monday. Uh, and if you want to help out the program, you can support us. Donate link is right at the top. You can also rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I do see those. Uh, if you want to reach out to me, loopcast at catholicvote.org. All right, break is over. Second, well, next week's story, we have the border. So the new update to this is that uh, Anthony Mayorkas is now uh, potentially up for impeachment. And the big questions I think people have with that is, uh, why did it take this long? Uh, number two, would impeachment actually do anything? Would it even be effective? Uh, Josh, do you have any any thoughts on this? What do you want to mean? Yeah, it's Alejandro Mayorkas. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it's not Anthony. No, no. Bro. I whitewashed him. Uh, apologies to Alejandro. Uh, please close the border, though, for real. Yes. <laughs> Josh. Well, there's there's so much going on with the story. I mean, the 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 crisis at the border is becoming. All impossible to ignore for even Democrats, okay? And and so now House Republicans are pushing forward with hearings to consider impeaching Homeland, uh, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, okay? And it's like obvious failure. 300,000 people come entering the country illegally in just the month of December. I mean, that's out of control. And so, but there's a lot of intrigue going on with this, okay? So, Florida Congresswoman Kat Kamek went on Fox and she told Harris Faulkner, yeah, um, she was talking to Mayorkas and Mayorkas responded if he gets you know, impeached, which there's a difference between impeachment and being removed. Everyone associates the word impeached with being removed from office. If you're impeached, you get, a, you get kick it over to the Senate for a trial. And if you're convicted, then you're removed from office, just so we're clear. But he... He said, you know, basically warned her about impeaching him. He said, quote, you won't like who comes next. 
Oh my gosh. It's like, how could anyone after you be any worse than you? I mean, it's impossible, (laughs) right? I mean, literally, if there was no one in the job, it would be better. But of course, it's it's sort of a, it's obviously a shot across the bow. He's trying to warn her, don't you dare impeach me. And that's the old thing he's got in his tool belt. Well, the person after me would be even worse than me. Like, what an amazing concession you're giving not a, here. Not a ringing defense, right? Like, uh, <laughs> sounds like record. you're terrible and maybe we should remove you anyway. No, I mean, and the right. thing is- it's because you, there is no defense, right? It's absolutely yeah. indefensible. So there, there is no defense. And I mean, he visits the southern border this week. This was, yeah, he, he goes down to the southern border after all these senators and representatives have been there. And he, he stands up and he like makes this speech about how you know, it's not really an issue of people crossing the border, too many people crossing the border. It's that the courts are too slow in processing them. So and you're like, no, have you seen the footage? I mean, this is this is you're literally you're there. What do you mean? See the footage? You're there, brother. You yeah, like that's almost it's worse that to moment. Me because if you could if you didn't go, you're like, you could at least claim a little bit of ignorance. You're like, oh, I, yeah. he hasn't really been there. He's there. But he's standing he's there. Like you can't say that you haven't seen the footage. You're there, bro. Like exactly. Oh, man. No, so oh. it's just like remember the George Floyd riots, and the reporter is standing in front of these burning cars and buildings, <laughs> yeah. and he's like mostly peaceful protests. Well, totally, like, totally. The America's burning up behind him. It was just like that. This moment of well, it's not that there's too many people. It's that they're they're crossing the border, and the 85 percent of them are being released, and the courts are just taking too long, man. The so, only of course, reason you know, why. The Democrats are starting to freak out about this is precisely because they're getting these poll numbers coming back, like I said, with Trump ahead by eight points in Michigan. And then the Democrats realize, oh, no, we actually might lose our jobs. Like, that's the only reason right. they care. They don't actually think it's the only reason he went down there. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. We've allowed somewhere of like eight to nine million people into this country illegally. We should do something about it. That's not that that doesn't they want that. They want that. They want cheap labor and they want future voters. Go ahead. I'm going to give you my new, point. my new data point. Again, we try to come up with different ways to describe the massive crisis that this is because the numbers are so numbing. So here's my new data point. So everyone could get really uncomfortable. In 2023, we've said this before, there were 2.4 million encounters at the southern borders. Does not include gotaways. That's actually equivalent. That is equivalent to the number of active duty members in the Chinese military. It's like we took the entire Chinese military, one of the largest in the world, and just shuffled them into Texas and then said, go wherever you want. And we know that 24,000 of them were military. And the problem would be that at the governor of Texas would dare bust them somewhere else. That's the real problem. Not that we let them in, not that we catch them, and then that we release them instead of returning them home. It's that this governor is not just keeping everyone in his own state. How dare he send them to Chicago or New York City. Oh, okay. I mean, I genuinely feel like I'm taking crazy pills because I remember starting this show and like thinking about the things we would talk about. And I thought maybe the board would come up a little bit because I feel like anytime you turn on Fox News over the past, like pretty much my entire life, someone's always on there talking about how the border's like bad in some capacity. Like I remember with Obama and Trump, it was like kids in cages or like we have too many. They would talk about it. It was always talked about almost to the point where I was just like, Okay, I'm just going to turn this off. It's background it's always noise, right? being talked about. Because yeah. we don't live and, in but, El Paso. Unfortunately, it's still always being talked about, but it's qual- qualitatively and quantitatively changed. Like, And yet it's still talked about. So it's like people are numb to it. 
I would have never thought we'd talk about this so much on this show. It's, it's, well, you it's know why, Tom? sucking the air out of everything. If I could, Josh, before, I have one more story to kind of illustrate this. And this came across Slack yesterday. Josh, I want to hear that point, but don't worry. Uh, so when I talk about qualitatively changed, here's an example. So in Brooklyn, there's a high school called James Madison That's High School. That's what I was going to say. Uh, yep. There was uh, approximately 2,000 uh, migrants. And when they say migrants, like these are people here illegally uh, on Floyd Bennett Field. So Floyd Bennett Field is their like high school football field. And they had tent, a tent city basically set up on a high school football field in Brooklyn. That's not even the crazy part about the story. That's been going on for a while. Which is like, right. could you imagine right. going to school and having a illegal migrant facility on your football field? Okay, so that's already crazy. Number two, that's uh, just the unfortunately, beginning. this is just the beginning. Just the beginning, uh, so folks. There, was, there were really high winds in Brooklyn to the point where that tent city became unsafe. So they had to move these migrants into the school to protect them. You might be thinking, where are the students of oh, this brother. school going to be? Uh, they were shifted to online learning. COVID, remember that? Just like COVID. Dry run. They, they're going virtual. Exactly. While People who are here in the country illegally are staying in the building, which, I mean, so many levels you get of to, betrayal You get to go here. to school, but these people who came here illegally get to be in your school. That's cool. Thanks, right. guys. It's absolutely this is, criminal. This is treason. This is total treason. Like, these are not Americans. Like, first off, what cruel treatment to make people live on a football field where it could potentially high winds right. could kill you or something like that. That's Number wrong one. to start with. And then to move them into school at the sacrifice of students that are Americans that pay tax, their parents pay taxes for them to right. be educated. And, and you're failing New York, them. They're high taxes. This is a lot of taxes. <laughs> this is not, yeah, unbelievable. I tried to think of a way to even like talk about this in a way that is not like making me angry. But everything about this makes me angry. Every element of this story is wrong. It's morally wrong. It's it's completely wrong. There's no. But every Christian who said. I can't even talk about it. It's crazy. Every Christian who kept signaling how virtuous they were by saying they love to welcome the stranger and we have to leave our open border wide open and we can't say anything about how is this maybe good for them? Is it good for us? Is this a smart policy to just to let a mass of humanity flood across an open border? That doesn't sound like a good idea. Anytime people would object to this. Christ, some Christians would would scold them and say, you're not being Christian, you're not being pro-life, you're being evil, you're being wrong, you need to shut up, you're racist, and you hate people. And it's like, well, wait a minute now. Like, if you allow 8, 9, 10, 11 million people illegally come into your country, how is that going to not affect the social safety net that we have in our country? How is that not going to affect the hospitals we build? and the schools that we build for our children. How is that going to just, like, we're not a magical place, like a magical little kingdom where we have endless supplies and cash. Like, just because we're a wealthy country doesn't mean we can allow 10 million people into our country illegally without it being disruptive to the social services that we provide for people. Like, it's insane. And if we object to it, you're just an evil racist. It's like, give me a break. It's just, right, and we're not even talking about social services like extra sub welfare state. This is children's education. This is one of the primary, like, funk reasons the the country exists. The reason government exists is for the <laughs> flourishing of the person. And education is one of those. And this is saying, sorry, kids, we know that virtual education is bad for you. We know that you're going to, you already have these reading lags. The American education system is broken. So 
we're just going to like kids are just they just become a pawn in this. There's no concern for these students. I mean, I would rather that they they kick people out of the, you know, the New York City Hall than that they <laughs> they kick kids out of their classrooms. To yeah, get put them up in the governor's, ma- uh, the mayor's mansion instead. And, yeah. and that's the point. That's the point, because in Chicago, the same thing is happening. They're, they're taking football fields and they're housing people and parents are coming to protest and they're saying this is unbelievable. Our kids can't play. The, the problem is, is that it's not hurting politicians and it's not hurting rich people. Rich people are not having migrants bust on their huge properties. It's poor people in the inner city that no longer can play football now and have to live with people who are unvetted. You have no idea what they're going to do. Have no allegiance to America. Could you imagine if like your kid who you were trusting to send to school had something happen to them from someone who sh- who is shouldn't unve- even, we don't even know who they are. Right. They shouldn't be there. And like, of course, how does that get painted? They're like, well, you're racist, Tom. You think that people came into America could potentially hurt kids. You're darn right. I can. I think that Americans can hurt kids. Let alone people we don't even know. Like sure. it, it just everything right. about this makes me so angry and it's it's hurting poor people. And those are the people that all the, the Catholic social teacher people are like, we want to help the poor. We want to build the, the, you know, close the wealth gap or whatever. It's hurting them the most. And that's the worst part about this to me. It's just like everything about it is so anti-Christian, anti-Catholic right. social teaching. And, and to take that one argument about like, I think you're right. Like I, I would be worried about any group of people set up in a tent city at a high school football field. That doesn't seem to be safe for them. It doesn't seem to be safe for the kids. It, it's untenable. But like the idea that, People object like, oh, you're saying immigrants are more committed to crime and all that kind of stuff. Just think about it from a prudential standpoint. Are you going to behave better in, in a town where you grew up in and you know people and you know, oh, there's the person, you know, you, you meet him at Walmart. That's my second grade, you know, school teacher. And, and this is the guy who I meet, see at the hardware store all the time as, and I'm not even just to get the immigrant thing about it. And then. All those commercials that we heard for so many years, what ha- what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas with the idea is that you can do things there, quote unquote, wink, 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 that you w- wouldn't maybe do in your own town. It's it's like basically giving you permission to be a little bit vice. Now, they're not actually suggesting you go steal, obviously. <laughs> it's basically allowing you to do like get drunk, be stupid, go to, uh, you know, uh, uh, X-rated establishments or whatever. That's the kind of wink and nod. That's but the idea behind that ad campaign is that naturally in a in a desert city, thousands of miles away from your home, you're going to do things you wouldn't do in your own hometown. It's just there is a there is a truth there. It is if you are thousands of miles away from your hometown, and certainly if it's an entirely different country, then you're probably going to behave a little bit differently than you would if it was your own hometown. Like that's just an obvious thing that everyone. This is what I hate about politics when there's certain obvious truths that we know and we're so we're supposed to suppress them because it might uh, be anger somebody or it might, you know, oh, gosh, that's not the correct thing to say. It's like, is it true or not? Like, why are we supposed to say, like, just self-censor ourselves? Like, it's not a smart idea to have a tent city on a high school football field. This is dumb. Oh, well, I know what we'll do. We'll move them all inside the school instead. Like. No, yeah. so, how do you send them home? Yeah. Like this is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah I, I, if one day, one day, I think I'm going to write a book. If I were to write a book, <laughs> I have this what theory would it be, about. Uh, I just think public accountability is actually very, very good. Dare I say, essential to a good society. 
and all of the forces that have removed a form of public accountability in, in your actual place of living have done nothing but ruined people uh, internally in terms of virtue and vice, but then also uh, in society. Like All the problems we're seeing right now are because exactly what you said, you have no connection to the person that lives three houses down from you anymore. And it would be almost impossible to not have that um, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, because you, you, there was no internet, there was no phones, like everything you, you're supposedly more connected and yet we're less connected. And there's a book, I always recommend this book is one of the uh, most formational reads I think to me, it's called Bowling Alone. Mm. And it was basically mm -hmm. about this, Great book. where we've lost these third spaces that people used to go in their communities, for example, barbershops or uh, like bowling a pool alleys, house obviously. or something like that. Uh, bowling alleys, of course. And uh, you would interact with people there that shared different views than you, but lived close in proximity to you. And therefore you had to reconcile those views and you could still have a good time. So you related to them more. And now we've just, those are gone and you can basically find your crazy community that agrees with you whatever crazy thing you agree with. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, right. well, and it's, it's not virtual. you, it's been done for you by uh, social Algorithms, media companies right. and tech companies that make a lot of money doing this for you. And I think they're just as complicit in a lot of this. Anyway, that's all going to come in my book one day. Then, right, supposedly, <laughs> pre-orders. Um, yeah, pre-order now <laughs> if you want to wait fifteen years, maybe. Uh, so uh, we we're gonna have a little bit of fun now. So we have uh, this really ripped across the internal Slack channels at Catholic Vote. People uh, had their two cents on it. Speaking of it's, our virtual office, this was yeah, hot topic. It's a fellow fellow Gen Zer uh, gave her two thoughts about entering the workforce, and we have it here for you. I'm gonna play it. I cannot stand how the news has been dogging Gen Z and calling them lazy for not wanting to work a nine to five for the rest of their lives. Let me put it in perspective for everybody who's a little confused here. Okay, I work five days out of the week, forty hours a week. Okay, I do not make enough to live on my own. I would not make enough to pay rent, water, electric, and eat all by myself. I would not be capable of doing that. 20 years ago, when you were getting started, you could live on your own. 20 years ago, when you first started, you were able to do everything that I am now struggling to do. Let me add another perspective here. You've been working for 20 years. You have 20 years of working experience behind your belt. You have 20 years of experience in a career that has allowed you to gain raises, to get more money, to profit you in an economy that you created. You could sit here and you can call Gen Z lazy all you want, but I've been working my tail end off just to barely make it by. And respectfully, I don't want to do that for the rest of my life. I don't want to work my tail end off, wasting all of my life working just to barely be able to pay my bills. And that is what you created, not Gen Z. We're just here getting started. You've been doing it for the last 20 years. You tell me how it got ruined. We can sit here and we can call Gen Z lazy all you want, but you let the economy turn into what it did. You let it all run to hell and now it's gen z's fault because we don't want to work to fix your mistakes okay so be careful what you say because I, i'm gen z 20 years ago i was five so filter you know, what is was, on what was going on what was going on 20 years ago guys was it was it that easy to <laughs> live on your own and you guys were rolling in the dough off your first job yeah i mean i'll say there there are difficulties facing gen z that i did not have to face 20 years ago. So I got married 20 years ago, right out of college. So I, I never had this dream of living alone in my own apartment because, praise God, I was able to move right in with my husband, which was awesome. Um, but 
I don't feel like there were a lot of people in my generation around me coming out of college, coming out of high school ex- with this expectation of I'm going to get my own place. I'm going to pay my own electric. I'm going to live on my own and then maybe get married eventually. So it's like the the idea of having roommates and trying to make ends meet, especially when you're young, that was just part of the expectation then as well. Maybe there were exceptions, like if you went to a really elite school and right into daddy's finance business on the East Coast here or something, you would you would expect that your parents set you up with an apartment and a car after graduation. That's a really small sliver <laughs> of the population, though. I don't. I went to school. I went to high school in this really small rural town. I mean, the girl in this video, she's wearing a Walmart vest. She's, you know, she's, she looks like she's blue collar, maybe in a small low income town. And that's, that's the town I grew up in. There's people out in the boonies who lived in trailers and were married to their uncle or whatever. That's just, that's what was around. And I don't feel like I, I, (laughs) I've carefully curated this elite East coast vibe for you on this podcast. Well, I I carefully curate this image around the (laughs) office. However, (laughs) I actually grew up in Podunk, New Hampshire, on the edge of Appalachia, and and I don't the the expectation was not that you're going to somehow get this you know fifty thousand dollar a year job right out of school. You're going to work hard, and it's gonna you're gonna you know bunk with your mates until you can until you can make it. So yeah, I'm not sure she has a good perspective on that. Well, and and like you know I. My Twitter blew up because I'm like, what's going on today? You know, and this, cause this thing hit and, and my friend Tim Carty posted on Twitter, like, yeah, I, you know, when I was right out of college and, and poor, uh, I roomed with Josh Mercer. <laughs> he says, That's right. <laughs> and then he had a few other roommates. And then he said, I was single for, in my own place for three months before my then wife moved in with me. So he's like, I've only been on my own for three months. Like if the expectation is that you should have an entry level job. And that should be enough. You could get your own place, but then you're not left with much money afterwards. That's true. So that's why most people, if they have an entry level job, their first or second job right out of college or high school, whatever it is, chances are, yeah, you'll want to have a couple of roommates to kind of split some of these costs and live a little bit, you know, so that you have more of your disposable income. So I understand that. Uh, like, I, but I think that's the, the, that's where we're not, there's, there's a disconnect. Like, I don't know why she think I didn't have expectations. So if she maybe she was sold a lie, and then she's like, "This doesn't add up, and this doesn't make sense." But it's like, well, then who was lying to you? Because like I, I never had that expectation that I would suddenly be independently wealthy. Like I mean, <laughs> like what? Um, I do feel like though, um, I, I there I, at least one part where I, I do sympathize with her because I do feel like th- that Gen Z the millennials and my generation X were sold kind of a lie. This idea that you absolutely have to go to college in order to get any meaningful job. And then kids go to these colleges and they get a debt, the size of a house. And they, they feel like they, they're like a gerbil that can never, they're never getting ahead. So in that sense, I do think that's that she, if she, she didn't really mention that, but that is part and parcel for what I think is a problem. I think we way overemphasize going to a four-year college. I think there's a lot of people who are better on a track towards doing the trades uh, or something like that. You know, if you're going to work at Walmart, you're not going to get a very great thing. Most, a lot of people who work at Walmart, some people do it. This is their full-time job. That's true. But it might be they're the second income of their family. 
or it's a part-time job that they do for a while as they try. I mean, look, I did part-time jobs, uh, you know, well into my twenties and thirties because, you know, I had to supplement the income. So I, this idea that like, you know, nine to five, Monday through Friday, that's not always the case. You know, we are scripting and we are saving. And, and, uh, I think that sometimes we, we got to be careful not to, you know, so a video gets posted like this and we immediately go, yeah, that's right. The economy is, it's, it's capitalism and let's overthrow the whole thing. And then the other side goes, she's a lazy bum, blah, blah, blah. Right. You know? <laughs> she's she's got a phone. Right. So obviously she's totally wealthy. It's like, okay, you know what? Come on. I mean, there are usually some the truth truths is somewhere in the middle. Yeah, exactly. Always. Usually the case that there's both sides. Yeah, I don't have know a if point. it's super productive. It's not super productive to go immediately too hard one direction or the other, especially not if you're like giving advice to this girl. Right. Uh, Gen Z, Gen Z, pop it up here real quick though. We got to stop yelling into cameras. Yeah, I don't, please I don't stop know. yelling. And maybe this is a little <laughs> hypocritical because during the uh, segment about illegal immigration, I did get a little fired up. But the amount of like car videos I've seen where people are just yelling into the camera, like, guys, we got we got to be better than that. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, like it was so an urgent. argument. Yeah, I did want to say too, I think that you know, while we'll look at a 20 something who's sitting in her car crying, yelling at the camera about how she you know, can't afford this on her 40 hour a week. I, there is something to be said. And our, our colleague, Tommy Valentine, brought this up in the Slack debate that there there has been a shift where he, he lives in, outside of Steubenville, Ohio. Right. So we're talking, you know, industrial America. And he, he wrote this down. I think it's I think it's worth yeah. saying. So post-industrial. Right. Steubenville, he wrote, was considered to have the highest standard of living in the country in the mid 20th century, because you could go to work in the mill straight out of high school, make the equivalent of today's $100,000 and raise a family on that one income. Um, and this was true all across the Midwest. And it just no longer oh, is. Oh, Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. Detroit. You, you could go work for and, Henry Ford and make a lot of money. Right. And I do think that there is something that we do need to do some serious self-examination, which we try to do in the loop. We try to do on this program in a society where uh, single income families are almost unheard of, except for the very, very top earning percent of Americans. That um, the fact that the fact that a twenty year old should have an expectation of, you know, I might have my job that I'm trying to climb a ladder and get promoted, but I also have one or two part time jobs to make ends meet while I'm single and I'm living with my friends. But when you're talking about like a thirty five year old uh, dad with multiple children and a wife who's already mid midway through his career. Maybe he's in management at this point, and they still can't make ends meet as a as a middle class family. Then there is an issue, and we need to we need to examine the causes of that. And if I may, as the person probably closest in age to this young lady, speak. I I appreciate that you guys went the direction you did, which is very macroeconomic, business focused. Uh, pa maybe pastoral might be a word used, but. As someone close to the age, I took it more, it, it seemed obvious to me that she didn't have friends. Mm. And that is almost the saddest thing about all of this because, you know, you can get good advice about business or entrepreneurship or how to make money. Like those are all good things to be kicking Life around tips, and like yeah. have that on your mind. And this is coming from someone that's had tons of jobs. I mean, I'm always running some type of side hustle. Like I get it. M me and my wife are like that. We've always been that way. My parents are. But I think what really made me sad was some of the best memories I have in my life were, you know, in a college dorm, a crappy college dorm with my best friends and we didn't have any money 
and all we had was time. And that actually is a source of great joy. And, and Erica, similar to you, I got married right after college. So I moved in with my wife, which is fantastic. But I, I often did think with my friends, good friends who didn't get married and then they lived together in an apartment or in a house or something like that, like how much fun that was. And I went to visit them. And of course, you know, not making a lot of money, just starting off helping split costs and stuff like that. But uh, none of like none of the money or anything like that is like tied to true happiness at the end of the day. Like I know plenty of people that would be considered poor or low status or whatever. That are some of the happiest people I know. And it the saddest thing about this video was she seemed lonely. Really lonely. And anyone that's screaming into a camera like that probably seems lonely. And I'm sure she's stressed out because she can't make end meet and she doesn't see a way out. So that's where some of the advice that you guys gave is good like that. But again, I think it goes back to the social media stuff where it's like she's got, I think, 77,000 followers on TikTok and does quite a few of those. Uh, I don't think that's getting her any closer to like connection or real friends or I don't know what her family situation's like, but oh, she's um, making I money for the, TikTok. That's true. So who yeah. knows if this is even genuine? I, I don't know. But no, I mean, I'm not saying she's making money herself. I mean, Oh, true. Yeah. Maybe all she's these followers whatever, and all but. the time spent on TikTok, <laughs> the social media companies are making China money off of it. her. Yeah. Like I, I, I think that I saw a lot of people in response to this talked about their, you know, happiest times being like what I suggested right out of college, not a lot of money, not a lot of responsibility, uh, but you just kind of got to live with some people that you love. And uh, that's actually a really cool thing. Another element I did think is there is a true a sense of entitlement, I think. And it gets harped on too much. Like I, I think like, you know, places like not the give a hard time to Fox this episode, but I see a lot of their advertising. It's like entitled Gen Z don't, says this ridiculous thing. And then everyone gets on in the panel. And like, so stupid. I can't believe it's so entitled. Uh, but I want to measure this. I think there is a level of entitlement. And one of the best examples I had to kind of temper that myself was I talked to members of my family, including my, I actually was really blessed to know my great grandparents. So they were alive during the great depression. And a couple of things like I think really stick with me. One, I talked to my great grandma uh, about she would take a tissue and she would rip a tissue in half and put half the tissue back and only use half the tissue. And this is when she's living with my Nana who uh, was taking care of her and like did just fine. Like it wasn't like they needed to do that. You don't need to save the tissue, right? And I asked her about that and she's like, I will never be able to break this habit because I just see it as unnecessary and wasteful because there was a time where I wasn't able to eat. So yeah. she, she's still like, well, Dang. to the day she died, she only used like this much shampoo. And my Nana's like, you can use shampoo. Like you don't have to ration it. She's like, I, I just can't. Like it's wasteful. And um, I think talking to them about times where they either didn't have enough food or even like my grandparents are like, yeah, it wasn't really an expectation that we would have meat every day. And it's crazy that like now we can just walk into a Chipotle and get whatever meat we want for, you know, even if we're complaining about well, that's, that's like getting, like, having someone else prepare for you. Exactly. Like, yeah. Like that's even a luxury as well. Like the yeah, right. Of, like that's freezers. a luxury they that people just that. expect it. It's like you know, you used to have to prepare your own meals. Like people. I mean, gosh. Right. And like we got these big chest freezers now that we can freeze down meat forever. Like that wasn't really a thing. Like even think about air conditioning. Like the air conditioning wasn't a thing until recently. So, um, I think it's interesting to talk to people in your life who have lived in different eras. And it really gives me a lot of perspective of like appreciate what I have. Don't take any of it for granted. And then I think that uh, not only does jobs, having a job and having an entrepreneurial mindset and hustling is not only good for you financially, but I think it's really good for you uh, to build virtue as well. Um, you appreciate the value of labor. Uh, you can eat 
to see the confidence boost of like succeeding in something after trying and failing maybe before, it's just so good for the human person, I think. So yeah, I think and that I think to, like, to tie really that good. in a little bit to sort of the, the both and the Catholic parents, for those of us who are raising kids, that the idea that it's okay and it might actually be really great to, to allow your kids to feel the want a little bit, to feel uh, a little bit of deprivation, not, not obviously we want to give them what they need to live, but, but to, to allow them to, you know, look, maybe we can afford to have meat five days a week. But what if we only had it three days a week or something? Or, you know, maybe you can afford meat every day. What if you just said, okay, we're going to follow the church's tradition of no meat on Friday and just feel a little bit of solidarity there so that there's, there's this both in. And I think, yeah, teaching our kids to work hard, to live virtuous lives, and to give them the sense that your family's here for you and, you know, you can talk to us and we can, we can work together if, if life ever throws you a, a bone, you know. Everyone's least favorite person is is entitled the spoiled you know what i mean like i can think of people who are like i cannot stand you because you're entitled like you know it's it's noxious it's a part of who you are every parent's nightmare is to raise entitled kids i think so it's it's (laughs) good erica you know that you're thinking of this now and it it, honestly it's crazy my kids like one but like i think about this all the time like how do i instill that kind of fire like that kind of like scrappiness in him because i do not want him to grow up thinking that everything's going to be handed to him It's, it's nothing that's horrible for someone spiritually as well. Like if you feel like spiritually everything's going to be handed to you or you don't need to access the sacraments or work on your spiritual life, like it doesn't matter how I act. It just makes a horrible all around person. So, so we move on to the twilight zone now, Erica, I think you are first. Okay, here I go. So I'm down on Apple products. I have to admit when people are like, oh, do you use a Mac or a PC? I'm like, PC. I just, I, and it's part of my contrarian nature, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Well, I was proved wrong. Over the weekend, what? turns out an iPhone fell sixteen thousand feet <laughs> from the air above Seattle to the ground of Seattle. And when the the man who found it picked it up, it was still functioning. And in fact, uh, the lock screen was on, and he could see the baggage claim number and the little screenshot that the person had been looking at when said iPhone fell sixteen thousand feet. So Apple products doing really, really well on their uh, quality control. We did also find out (laughs) why the Apple phone fell. Boring, not so much. People people who are not doing well on their quality control. Turns out, yeah, Boeing is having a hard time. And you've probably all heard now about the story of the the Boeing uh, 737. It took off out of Portland. It got about five minutes into the flight, 16,000 feet up. And the fuselage blew out. So this uh, door-sized square just past the wing just completely blew out. Fortunately, it ripped an entire seat leather cushion off. Multiple passengers uh, lost their phones, their earbuds. Everything was ripped out. Terrifying experience. Fortunately, somebody's guardian angel was watching out for them that morning. There was no one in that actual seat right next to where the panel blew out. So no lives were lost. But I can only imagine. Those of us who grew who who watched the Lost the Lost TV series back in the 2000s and you see the scene where the plane breaks apart I was just I was replaying that in my mind reading the story <laughs> but the point I would like to make here other than I was wrong about Apple good job iPhone is that the the story came out who is responsible for this so the fuselage part comes from a uh, an industry called Spirit Aero Systems 
And Spirit Aerosystems, um, they've had multiple issues in the last year with their max fuselages. Um, they have various defects coming out. And the issue was that they're improperly drilled holes and that this should have been caught, of course, with quality control. Ultimately, Boeing is responsible. But Spirit Aerosystems has made itself and sort of made its name in the industry, the aeronautics industry here, um, by by its DEI commitment. Oh, no. And it is oh, no. Spirit Aerosystems. And the, I, so I went onto their DEI page because they're not exactly hiring for talent. Spirit, this is direct quote, Spirit values the full range of differences, perspectives, and abilities that our employees bring to the workplace. Now, I know they're talking about like people in wheelchairs and like disabilities, but one would hope that those inspecting our aircraft carry, our aircraft and our fuselages and our engines and everything that Spirit provides for Boeing would have top-notch abilities, not a diversity of ability, but top-notch excellence since people's lives literally depend upon it. Yeah. So that's what not really a win for to... the DEI. That's where we say DEI needs to D-I-E. And if, D -E if DEI doesn't <laughs> die, you might. <laughs> yeah. Dude, that's we're right. Next. Literally, we are going to die because the of DEI. The CEO and, and Mark Cuban are probably boys because he's come out as the champion of DEI, which is pretty hilarious considering he owns the Dallas Mavericks, which uh, lacks some diversity on the basketball court. <laughs> Moving on, uh, Josh, your Twilight Zone. All right. Well, you know, it's campaign season, full effect 2024. And, uh, we got the Iowa caucuses just around the corner. And at, right after that, the, the primary in New Hampshire, your native state there, Erica. So this is pretty funny. Um, on the democratic side of the aisle, uh, Joe Biden has actually removed his name from the ballot in New Hampshire because he wants the South Carolina primary to be the first one now for the Democrats. So whatever. It's always one of those things. But the, the Twilight Zone part of this is uh, the congressman, uh, Dean Phillips, he's actually the, my parents' congressman. He's a liberal, uh, I, they call him a moderate Democrat, I guess, out of the western suburbs of Minneapolis. He decided he was going to throw his hat in the ring because he thinks Joe Biden is, you know, 45,000 years old. And uh, Democrats deserve to have, you know, an alternative. And it kind of makes wrong. sense. Like, what happens if he drops dead? Like, might as well be on the ballot. I mean, it's not a, it's not a zero percent proposition. So, Dean True. Phillips, he's got, he's going to campaign though. So he's out there in uh, Manchester, outside the DoubleTree Hotel this week, and he's got his special government repair truck coffee conversations. He's going to have this event where he's going to talk to the voters and he's got Dunkin' Donuts coffee, right? That's what they like in New England, right? Yes, so, we love our Dunkin' Donuts. And and so what happens? Well, reporters show up, but no voters. <laughs> uh, it's tough. <laughs> Brutal, That's man. Tough, man. I, it's tough, man. It uh, hurts. It just, it just gets you up. So, um, Poor Dean. If you would have brought Tim Hortons, people would have came. Uh, oh no! Maybe Michigan, they don't recognize bro. That. Mi Michigan, yeah, bro. Michigan. They don't have it out there. They'd be like, "What is this? They had Tim Hortons. They would have been there. Some Timmies, some Timbits. Shout, shout out to all the Tim Hortons adorers out there. The only Tim Hortons I've ever seen in New England. I mean, there might be more now, but the only one I've seen is way up in northern Maine near the Canadian border. I was wow, like, "Oh my gosh, it's Tim Hortons! 
<laughs> they came so, over the border. Tim Hortons might be the only thing I like about Canada. Tim, Tim Hortons and uh, hockey. Hockey. Probably the big yeah. two. That's all right. I'd, so, well, don't be dogging on Canada. Come on. I'd trade New England to Canada if we could take Alberta and Saskatchewan. <laughs> Erica, we'd let you leave before we do anything. Thanks. I can get out first. Would you trade Joe Biden for Justin Trudeau? I'd um, trade Joe no. Biden for right. a pack of bubble gum. <laughs> Used. I mean, would make or maybe a vanilla, vanilla ice cream cone. Uh, okay. My uh, my shout out the Twilight Zone. I'm gonna go positive. So for any other listeners uh, who maybe grew up playing uh, the Halo video game series, are aware that it possesses one of the most iconic music tracks of all time. It is kind of one of those examples where he went so hard. The composer on this went so hard on this track for no reason. What like, is Halo? It's a, it's a video game. It's it's a <laughs> it's a video game franchise. It's a first person shooter. That is in space. And if there's real Halo heads out there, I don't want to like offend people by my not full knowledge. I had Halo 4 and played it with my brothers growing up. Still pop it out sometimes. What? Uh, but yeah, just a very popular <laughs> cult following is very groundbreaking for the first person shooter genre. I've now lost Josh, I'm sure. But anyway, this music track, if it wasn't copyrighted, I'd play it because I love it so much. But it's like a, it, it's, it's uh, ethereal might be a good way. It, it sounds very like Gregorian chant-esque. It's like church music. Yeah. And my favorite like videos are when music. yeah the yeah, good, like good stuff, tr- yeah. church music yeah, the good my stuff. favorite videos are when high schoolers will go in their like school bathroom because of the tile and sing like they'll just pack like eighty kids in there and then sing the Halo theme music because it bounces off the walls it's like epic what are you I, but, what are you kidding me yeah oh yeah it's a thing yeah acoustics man it's awesome it's, it's awesome. very moving gotta... <laughs> I can't even believe this <laughs> oh yeah it's awesome <laughs> what. <laughs> you're saying that 70 80 kids pack into a bathroom because the acoustics are better and they sing a song from a video game that's correct yep you're, you're making this tracking so far i'm not dude i'll show yeah. you i don't believe uh, anyway it. the the guy's name is marty o'donnell a legend he's the one who composed the track and someone commented on a youtube video saying that uh you know martin i want to I want you to know that your music is what led me to Christ. I grew up playing Halo, being seven years old when Halo CE was re- released. Eight, I absolutely seven? loved the series Come of music. Come on, dude. Yeah. First person shooting game, seven year old should not play that. I'm going to say it. All right, say but what you want. But it led him to Christ. This is how I convinced my parents to let us play it was there's no blood uh, because they're just like, they have armor on in space. Exactly. Because they were like, nah, Call of Duty's not, but they're like, Halo, that's all right. Got them. Uh, I absolutely love the series music and it stuck with me over many years in an indelible way. I felt something stir in my soul that no other music could accomplish. Like, I praise. I mean, it is pretty awesome. I attended my first Catholic mass in my late 20s and fell in love with the church after hearing those beautiful Gregorian chants that had been buried deep in my mind for so many years. And I finally converted from my lifelong agnosticism. Your music planted the seed in my young heart to find God. And I owe you quite literally my eternal thanks. You helped save a soul in a way. Thank you for sharing your gifts with the world. That is like, I love it. Tearjerker. I love that. Beautiful. I love that. But I will say this. Wait, wait, Josh. Josh, before you go on. It gets better. It gets better. Marty O'Donnell commented on this comment saying, Wow, I just saw this. Thank you for sharing your story. I just converted to the Catholic Church after two years of RCA at the Easter Vigil this week. So he's back, which is no surprise. I mean, that was half of music. That's really cool. Welcome home, Marty O'Donnell. Josh, your your comment. Well, I just, in general, I very much oppose. 
video games because they've, they're too good in a sense. They're, they become addictive. They know exactly what they need to do in the game to get, get you just like hooked. Like it's like a lab rat thing. And I just feel like I don't want it. Like I, I let my kids play some games like on computers, but I, I limit the amount of time they have and how many kids can play it so that they have other things that they can do. And this year it's like new year's resolution. I'm like, let's go guys. I got more weight equipment and, 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 and the, and the, and the bikes and we're exercising and we're doing stuff. It's like, have a more, um, constructive use of your time. Not that you can't play. It's fine. Some games, but I just right. kind of worry right. that Our the games have become so intense and immersive. So I don't have yeah, any I'm super addictive. For I kids. don't have any, uh, PlayStation, Nintendo thing, whatever it's called now. And in fact, this is two generations going on this time. Okay. So here's what I'm saying. My dad goes off to, you know, cause he was in the Navy reserve. And so he goes to California for two weeks in the summer and all we're all saying, listen, dad, he comes back and he's got the new, this is 1986, the new Nintendo set. And that was all the rage. Right. And my brother and my sister would play this all the time. They loved it. Like Josh play, play. I'm like, it's just, it seems boring. It seems like a waste of time. I'd rather cl collect baseball cards and watch CNN. You were an old man as a kid. I was. That's right, yeah. the old soul. The old, old soul. Right. A little bit of pushback, okay? You know, I grew up playing video games. I'm just fine. <laughs> uh, I, I, okay? Like, if I'm I do right. say so myself, I'm doing good. I do good. say so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I pop it out from time to time. I'm not a gamer. You I don't still want play people now? to think that I'm a gamer. Uh, yeah, with friends. Like, sometimes if people will come over, like, Adults pop on. playing like, video games. I yeah. still, oh, yeah. still Dude, like, I, every, every time I hear <laughs> it, That might be like, the generational divide here. But you know what? You're robbing your kids of potentially, you know, having a deeper conversion by listening to the Halo theme track according <laughs> to They don't need person. to convert. So they you. are Catholic, bro. You can listen to the so. soundtrack separately. <laughs> I'm going with that. Yeah, you can just listen to the soundtrack. But anyway, that was a little bit of a fun story. Hopefully to bring us up there. Uh, so that does it for this episode. If you want to help us out, uh, reviews, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Email me, loopcast at catholicboat.org. You can't get enough Loopcast. I did an interview. I released it. Uh, this is the one before this. It's uh, with this guy, Alec Torres, former speech speechwriter for Donald Trump, which is very interesting. He wrote an interesting book about what happens when saints are persecuted by the church themselves. Uh, very relevant for times. He, he is a cool guy. I felt like he had a like, good rapport. I definitely want to hang out with him sometime. But if you want and that, go check games, it out. Apparently. Before this. <laughs> no, he lives in rural Texas. He's, I said we chop some wood. He's got a lot of wood on his property. Go grouse so hunting or something. You know, yeah, that'd be sick. So anyway, with those for this episode, and we will see you on the next one. Our Lady of Guadalupe, St. Fidelis, St. Thomas More, pray for us, and we will see you guys later.